and welcome to this episode of the Sobre Mesa podcast with me, your host, Alan McGuire. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in the Madrid campaign trail, Vox changed the tone of the conversation quite a lot by putting up a poster um, that was comparing an unaccompanied migrant child or the cost of the administration to you know, manage, document um, these uh, unaccompanied migrant children uh, with the cost, well, with how much an, an elderly um, Spanish abuela gets for her pension every month. Now, this online after it went up in the central train station in Sol was compared to Nazi propaganda and this quite provocative um, campaign propaganda uh, has been widely um, shot down by all political parties. Um, but it's not the first time that this sort of propaganda or any kind of propaganda from Germany has come to Spain. Um, it's widely known that Spain was neutral during the Second World War, um, but challenging that narrative is my next guest. Mercedes Penalba Sotoro is a senior lecturer and historian based at Manchester Metropolitan University. Welcome to Sobre Mesa, Mercedes. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for having me. So, Mercedes, uh, that, that couple of weeks ago, we did have this, you know, this Vox poster in the center of um, in the center of of uh, Sol in Madrid, and there was a lot of comparisons with Nazi propaganda. And your your research in um, Nazi propaganda, but inside Spain. So this is quite an odd thing, isn't it? Because it's one country's propaganda inside another country that was supposedly neutral during the Second World War. But can you tell us what are you, you know, how are you researching and what are you, what what questions are you trying to answer and what are you doing for research? Yeah, of course. Uh, so my, my current project looks at Nazi propaganda in Spain during the Second World War. And I think you will maybe understand better why I'm doing this if I explain where this idea came from. Uh -huh. So I was actually doing research at an archive in Madrid, the Archivo General de la Administración. And then by chance, I came across this bulletins right and i started reading the headlines they're all saying uh poland has attacked germany uh the polish people are prosecuting the german citizens in poland uh and all this narrative about how poland has started the second world war and i kept thinking what where is this coming from how, how is this possible and who is going to believe this thing right so it was a, a, a huge collection of those uh bulletins and then i started looking into that and i realized this is the kind of propaganda that they're doing in Spain. They're trying to convince um, the Spanish elites of the war being a defensive war for Germany. So I was very interested and I got into that. And then I thought, okay, I want to look at the content of this propaganda. It's actually bigger than, than I thought. This is about not only the content of the propaganda, but it's about how Germany creates a network of collaborators in Spain that contribute to that propaganda. So the relationships that they create with Falange and how they both together create campaigns, I thought that was really interesting. So what I'm trying to do is I'm looking at these networks, I'm looking at these materials, and by doing so, I'm trying to understand better how Spanish-German relations change and evolve and how maybe we can get a better idea of what Germany's strategy at war is by dealing with this neutral, not so neutral country 
in which they have a lot of interest. Mm. So it's a lot about propaganda, but it's also a lot about neutrality, really. Mm. Like the propaganda reflects, you know, the, the state of the relationship, I suppose, right? Yes, yes. And I think it also reflects the interest, like the changing interest that Nazi Germany has and develops in Spain throughout mm. the period of the war, because of course, it's not the same thing before they attack Russia than after they, they have done it. So mm. I think it's a very interesting lens to use to actually explore that relationship and also how Germany uses Spain to influence other areas like the North of Africa or Latin America, which is mm. also very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it uh, sounds fascinating. The paper of yours that I read, you mentioned within the first couple of paragraphs, um, very interesting character called Hans Lafford. Um, so who is Hans Lafford? I think he's quite pivotal in your in your research, isn't he? Sounds it. Yes, actually, I was even tempted to transform my project into bio into a biography because he's oh, so wow. interesting. Wow, it's very wow. tempting, really because he's a very um, obscure character. So this is someone who is behind all the propaganda campaigns from late 37, early 38 till 45. And he's the one character that doesn't change. So the ambassador changes, other people change, but he's still there. And he manages to actually survive a lot of things in a way. I'm, I'm using survive very liberally here. But yeah. he's Austrian, he's not German. He's an Austrian of Armenian origin that was born in Constantinople. So he, he wow. already has a very strange life story. He fights in the First World War and interestingly, he gets actually awarded the Iron Cross uh, and other, uh, other decorations. But then in the interwar period, he starts offering his services to, to Germany and to German organizations, particularly German economic organizations and German media organizations. So he, in between 27, 37, he works for both the Austrians and the Germans. He even actually gets the dubious honor of becoming the person that reads out loud the proclamation of the Anschluss to the Austrian journalists based in Berlin. And then in 37, he says to the Austrian government, oh, I'm going to take a vacation. He does that and then he gets in touch with Ribbentrop in Germany and says, oh, well, maybe we could work together. And he convinces Ribbentrop of sending him to Spain to work for one of their news agencies. And then he becomes an agent of the Germans. He doesn't bother telling the Austrians, I'm not working for you anymore. He just does his own thing. <laughs> he becomes an agent of the Germans. And the interesting thing is that he very rapidly goes from being just a representative for a news agency to becoming the press attaché of the embassy. Because the thing that he does brilliantly is that he creates networks. He has a lot of contacts, a lot of connections, and these connections serve him very well to place items in the Spanish press. Like he daily, he would meet with the, with the directors of the main newspapers in Spain. This is wow. not, you know, this is not the ministry, like the Spanish ministry. This is someone who works for the German embassy, mm -hmm. meeting them every day. He has friendships with leaders in Falange. He has friendships with Wilhelm Canaris, who is the, um, this big man in the Abdua. So he is really powerful. 
And even when the Nazi party tries to get rid of him in 44, because he ends up having links to people who were involved in the July 44 coup, like plot against mm-hmm. Hitler, mm-hmm. his other connections save him from potential prosecution. Wow. Not that he had anything to do with it, because I don't think he did, but of course he did have contact with people who did. Mm-hmm. Yet he gets, you know, scotch free. Mm-hmm. And many people have described him as the gray eminence of the of the regime as spider in his web right but even at the end 45 he strikes the deal with one of the key members of franco's government and in exchange from getting rid of a document the only copy that remains of an agreement that they had reached he gets his name removed from the list that the allies have of people that they want to remove from Spain and denazify, send back to, to Germany to a denazification camp. And thanks to that, he gets a scotch free and he just moves through Brazil. And the most amazing thing is that this is someone who is, an, I think he's a professional really, 45, February 46, sorry, he contacts the Austrians again and says, do you remember I used to work for you in 1937? So what if I work for you again? <laughs> and of course, they don't take the offer. But the fact that this is someone that has actually ignored them and left them and now says, oh, I can work for you again. <laughs> wow. It's, it's, it's an amazing character, really. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like someone from the film, someone you can, yeah, you can, you know, there's these characters usually ducking and diving and dealing and wheeling. And wow. Um, and I suppose one thing that must be uh, quite difficult for for your research, or it, I suppose it's something to go against, isn't it? Is this wide sort of widespread understanding that oh, you know, Spain was neutral during the war. Um, you know, as, as many people say, oh, you know, Switzerland was was neutral during the war, and then then you start talking about Nazi gold and things like that. Um, so, so how is it like challenging this this narrative um, that Spain wasn't well wasn't so neutral during the war? I think it's very tricky because I think the problem is not so much challenging the narrative as a whole, but challenging aspects of it or nuance in it. Because the problem is, I think the problem we've had, particularly in Spanish historiography, is that. Uh, Frankismo managed to create this very useful myth around Franco and around the Second World War, which was uh, Franco was smarter, Franco was smarter than all of them, and then he very intelligently kept Spain out of the war. Mm -hmm. And then in that context, neutrality becomes a very positive term, right? Mm -hmm. A very positive thing. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing is that I discovered that actually neutrality is a very tricky word, and it's not always positive. The problem is that, you know, when you have total war, which is what the Second World War is, neutrality becomes really tricky and very difficult to actually enact. So uh, some key researchers of neutrality have said, actually, neutrality seems to be in the eye of the beholder, because everyone like qualifies neutrality, and then Mm -hmm. they talk about military neutrality as something different from a strict neutrality something different from covert neutrality or beneficial neutrality. So I think it's, neutrality is such a tricky, tricky concept mm. that was being highly debated in the 1930s. So I think in the case of Frankismo, he, um, 
neutrality is useful for both Spain and Nazi Germany. And then neutrality is not as positive as they made it out to be, because it's about taking advantage of that technical Spanish neutrality to actually gain things, right? To get uh, some things that are basically what I would say in my project is um, in the end, the first one of the first ambassadors during the period who is uh, Everhard von Storer, he was right. It was a neutral Spain was a better bet for Nazi Germany than a belligerent one. Because a belligerent in Spain would be a risk eventually, and it would take money and effort, and it would be costly. From a neutral Spain, they could get a lot of things. So I think it's about trying to reframe what we mean by neutral. And actually, it's, I think, something that's even relevant today, because there are questions that we can still not answer generally. So how do you distinguish, for example, how do you separate political neutrality from economic neutrality mm. or when a conflict is highly ideological how do you justify that maybe your government is neutral but is selling weapons mm. to a dictatorial regime yeah then are you being neutral really mm. they're all tricky very tricky questions i think yeah no and very very as you say very very re relevant today for both spain the uk probably quite large parts of europe and the united states and probably can, can name a whole list uh yeah Absolutely. yeah um how so how so there it seems that their relationship sort of was like ebb and flow throughout the the second world war how did uh how did their relationship sort of progress um and change uh during and after the war oh before during and after the second world war so I can think yes, uh, because recently, um, I think I mentioned it to you at some point, um, recently I started looking back to the period of the Spanish Civil War. Uh -huh. And then I started looking at Italy and Germany and their propaganda and how they relate to each other. And I think the interesting thing about Nazi Germany is Nazi Germany was not particularly interested in Spain for this purpose before the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War. Uh -huh. And then is throughout the Spanish Civil War, like there's this turning point in a way that Germany becomes more and more important, more, more and more present. And then the phalanges, for example, become more and more in awe of what Nazi Germany is, and increasingly more of them than of fascist Italy, which is an interesting turn of events. And I think the Nazi propagandists that they send to Spain particularly thanks to Hans Lazar from 1937-38, they take advantage of this situation very well. And mm -hmm. then they create these networks. And then they, their presence increases exponentially throughout the Second World War. Then I think there are tricky issues because while I would say up to um, 1942, things are very going very well between them. In, mm -hmm. especially between the phalanges and the Germans, but there are tensions as well. And that's something that I wanted to, to highlight. For example, an example of how this relationship ebbs and flows is that in 1939, when Nazi Germany attacks Poland, they try to get the Spanish press to reproduce their version of events mm. and the Spanish press doesn't do it. And they don't do it because they cannot bring themselves to 
say that because Poland is a Catholic country. Mm -hmm. And not only that, it's one of the first countries to recognize Franco. So oh, if yeah. something doesn't agree with their own interests, they're not doing it, mm. no matter how much they like the Germans, right? So there's a bit of negotiation some, sometimes. So I think between uh, Falange and, and Germany, I think there's a strong collaboration, particularly until 1943. They even create a joint campaign, um, which is the grosser plan, the, the big plan, right? That serves both the domestic agenda of the Falangists and the international agenda of the Germans, which I thought yeah. was very interesting. But I think once, so 1940, I think is the moment in which particularly the Falanges are over the moon. They think once France has fallen, they think, oh, this is it. The future is the new order. So now this is our turn. So they approach the Germans as well because they think that will ensure their own political future in Spain. Mm. They think this is our chance, right? And then that increases collaboration. But the interesting thing, though, is that even at that point in which most of the historiography will be focusing on the issue of Gibraltar, the fact that Nazi Germany wanted for Franco to allow them to take Gibraltar, right? Uh -huh. um, the interesting thing is at that point, even, they're not interested from a propagandistic point of view exclusively on that, actually Lazar is more concerned about what's going on in Latin America or in other areas. And there's a point in which he expresses concern because the phalanges have become so blatantly imperialistic in the rhetoric that they're saying things that are getting many Latin American nations nervous, like, oh, now Falange is going to try and recover somehow the imperialistic rule in Latin America. So they need to ask Falange to tone it down because that can hurt Germany. So I think this link of what you do can hurt me and what I do can hurt you. And therefore we should somehow play nice and try to benefit each other. I find that fascinating. fascinating. And mm -hmm. I think that happens until 1943 because by then Franco, I think, and many other people, they already realize things are not going well for Germany. So we need to change tack, right? And that's where this fluidity of neutrality allows the Francoist elites to play, like play the Germans and play the US for different things, mm. which I think is quite, quite interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's a completely different way of looking at the the history I've read of it um, is and and just to sort of clarify the the Falange they were you know they were having their own sort of internal fight within the Francoist regime right for power more power and they so did they sort of le leverage the power they got from the Nazis or I think um, so one thing they do from the beginning uh, so the Falange is constantly trying to gain more power because the problem Falange has is that as trendy as they seem, obviously, in 1939 and 1940, the problem is they have not actually, in a way, what the army is going to always say is, we won the, the war. You didn't. I mean, Falange in its own didn't win the war. This war wasn't won with, wouldn't have been won without the army. So what are you talking about, right? And then Falange needs to deal with other groups that not always see eye to eye with them. And I'm talking about parts of the conservative elites in some cases, 
I'm talking about the car list uh, and I'm talking about members of the army because in the army you have members of the army who are phalanges and others who are not. So there's this constant tension sometimes for more power and they want to use this relationship. So if for them, in a way, this is what comes across, I think, from the documentation is for them, a German victory like opens the way to a full on phalanges victory. So if Germany wins, this is going to make it so much easier for us. So I think they do, they do learn a lot. They try to learn a lot from, from Germany. So they ask for a lot of documentation about Nazi legislation, for example. They try to mimic things. They try to copy things. They do, they go, they travel to Berlin to learn from them. But I would say it's more of a, in that sense, a one-sided, a little bit one-sided relationship. The phalanges are more interesting, are more interested in learning from the Germans than the Germans are in teaching them, if this makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. yeah. So they're trying. So I think they leverage it in the sense that if, if the Germans do well, then we can argue that we need more power because we're the future, because the future is the new order. Mm. And, and they do try to leverage uh, Germany's connections in Latin America, but I still need to look into that because I haven't explored it enough, but they do try to benefit from each other to expand their contacts in Latin America. Wow. And uh, so this relationship that sort of goes back and forth, back and forth, how does the, the propaganda reflect all of this, like the propaganda that you found, the bulletins, and uh, you said that the, the Hans uh, Lafarde meets with the, you know, the news editors. I think ABC is, is very similar to the Daily Mail in the UK. You know, it's famously supported Hitler and Franco. Um, but uh, how does, and, and what are they sort of, what are they, what are they using the propaganda for? Is like, like um, could you reflect uh, could you tell us a bit about like the the networks and the economic interests and and you know why why are they put in so much emphasis on uh germans putting so much emphasis on propaganda in spain like what they're protecting and, and using it for really yeah of course i think uh so for example the first thing i was expecting to find was I thought, oh, surely they're going to talk a lot about Gibraltar, right? They're going yeah. to talk a lot about Gibraltar. They're going to try and, and they did not. <laughs> I was like, I was very surprised that they did not as much as I thought. So I thought maybe it is because the phalanges might be doing this for them already. Like if the phalanges are already talking about Gibraltar a lot, why should I insist? Could be that. But I think it's more because German propaganda has different audiences. So it's not the same thing, the information bulletins that the embassy creates. And those are first and foremost addressed to Francoist elites, members of the political elite and the economic elite and the cultural elite, right? And then there are the news that they introduce into the newspapers in Spain. And there are the news that they introduce to the broadcasting stations. And then there are the little um, crossword puzzles and little publications that I will mention in a little bit, right, which are for the general population. So I think depending on the audience, you can see that they have different messages. So mm. 
that's how you can see, okay, they have more interest than I thought, more varied interests. So for example, for the elites at the beginning, it's a lot about painting the war as a defensive war and it's painting Germany as a defender of neutrals, which in hindsight, I always find it very strange, right? Mm. That this could work, this line of argumentation could work. And it's a lot, the one constant that I found throughout for every single item is it's always about preventing, limiting or minimizing uh, French and British influence over Spain. Mm. It's about trying to, and particularly the British, it's, part, it's virulent anti-British. We cannot let them come close. So I think it's as much to keep Spain closed as it is to prevent Spain from going over to the other side. Mm. And that's a, a constant throughout. So also the other thing that you can see in the materials uh, addressed to the elites is this economic interest. So you find a lot of items that talk about German technology, German culture, German technology, German industry. How well does the new order work? How they are great. Whenever they occupy a country, they make that country better. That's the message because they bring the German industry and then things work better. They are more organized, right? Uh, so it's about integrating Spain into that future new order and integrating her economically, let's say. Mm. And the other economic uh, objective that I saw very clearly is using Spain to try and influence Latin American nations against the United States. Right. And not directly against, but it's more about creating this fear of the United States. So one message that I see a lot is, oh, because the United States have this well, very neo-imperialistic agenda in Latin America, this is going to destroy Hispanic culture. This is going to destroy the heritage, like Spanish heritage in Latin America, and there will be nothing left. And then your links to Latin America will be severed, and this is going to hurt you internationally, right? That's the message to the Spanish elites. And the more general message is the United States is taking advantage of all these Latin American nations for mm -hmm. their um, raw materials, waiting, expecting that those items are going to be reproduced by the phalanges organizations that are there in Latin America in different countries, like in Cuba, in Mexico, in other places. And even they try to, once they decide, okay, Spain is going to remain neutral, Ravenshop actually wanted Spain to lead a neutral bloc in Latin America wow. to prevent those nations from joining the United States. And this plan obviously doesn't work at all, doesn't even take off because it's not possible. But the fact that he thought about this says a lot about the usefulness of a Spanish neutrality. Mm -hmm. And then for the general public, I felt that those are the most interesting materials because particularly 42, 43, is the, the grosser plan, the, the big plan, right, of propaganda. And that's addressed to the masses. So that is a lot about counteracting Allied propaganda. And if the Allies say Germany is anti-Christian, they try and prove the opposite. If the Allies say, oh, Germany is taking so many raw materials from Spain, they try and prove that it's not them, it's the British. So for example, little leaflets explaining to people if you don't have 
if there's not enough enough oil or if there's not enough cereal, particularly cereal, is not because of us. This is because the British are taking it from you. And there's a lot about this. It's about mm, making sure that they believe in a German victory and that the British, the US, less so the French, but as well, they are the enemy. It's not Germany. Germany is never the enemy. And those are interesting because they use humor, they use cartoons, they use crosswords, they use games to try and communicate these ideas. Well, and uh, so the Allies were, were pushing propaganda as well. You said that they used the links for, for North Africa as well. What was, what was, could you explain a bit more about that? Yes, there, I think it all... Um, that one is, is something that actually needs further research right. because uh, there is some, some work, uh, not particularly in Spanish Morocco, but there's some work on Nazi propaganda for the Arab world by mm. Jeffrey Herf, which I thought was a really interesting book. Um, but in the case of Spanish Morocco, I thought, um, so you know that Spain takes advantage of the Second World War to occupy Tangier. Mm. And then the Germans and the Italians established missions in Tangier. And those missions are very interesting because they serve for espionage and they serve for many other things and they serve for propaganda. The only problem with Tangier is that because everyone is trying to use it for propaganda and push it, it becomes so overflown with propaganda that at some point it loses its meaning, right? But what I found interesting was that uh, Germany was using those agents that they had in Spanish Morocco to push anti-colonial propaganda to the, um, well, basically, I'm going to use the term Arab world, is they're trying to push this narrative that needs to reach farther than Morocco, which is uh, the British, they're imperialistic, you should get rid of them, this is your freedom, you should be free. The issue with this argumentation is that, of course, how do you push that when, well, you have another colonial power, which is Spain, right? And that's where you are. So what they do is that eventually they start criticizing the Spanish government in the same way. Wow. They start painting the Spanish government as a colonial power, which it is, right? Because the propaganda needs to make sense. And mm. this causes some friction with the Spanish government because of course they're being criticized by the so-called allies. Mm. So I think yeah, is something I, uh, needs, that needs to be explored further, but I think there's so much more there that needs to come to light about mm. what they did and what kind of agenda they were pushing. But certainly they were using Spain as a way to increase that propaganda towards the whole region. Just my last question is how, how does this sort of, flow over into after the Second World War? Well, I think, of course, there's going to different kind of projects. I think I would highlight maybe two clear things, right? One is very well known, but not for that, uh, but still needs more research done on it, which is the rat lines. That The fact that 45 actually Spain helps many, many, many Nazi officers to escape to escape Europe, 
to use the, the so-called rat lines to, to end up in Latin America or in other places. And some people actually stay, like um, someone that I met in, in Madrid, for example, told me she served as secretary of this German guy. Uh, and she didn't know who, she, who he was, right? This was in the early 50s. And then she discovered that this guy was Otto Skorzeny. And Otto Skorzeny, he was an SS officer who actually uh, liberated Mussolini from Mount Abruzzo. So this guy was in Spain in the early 50s, you know, living his life. Wow. So this is part of what remains. I think the other part that remains is that um, it's rhetoric, but that's harder to trace. Yeah. For example, I was slightly surprised initially because I didn't make the connection. And then when I started the project, I think there might be a connection uh, that Sanchez Drago, I think I'm sure that you've heard of him, maybe this is Spanish uh, right-wing journalist. So Sanchez Drago used to say still in the 1960s that the second world war had been initiated by the Jews, by the Jewish people. And this was a Nazi argument. And this was something that was pushed. So I think while that no one has looked into that, I think probably if we look at narratives throughout the dictatorship of what the Second World War was, I think we can find traces of some mm -hmm. of these messages and how far do they reach into sometimes into the present. Well, yeah. So, uh, thank you very much, Mercedes. It was brilliant. Thank you.